Good morning, church. Please take a copy of God's Word. If you would, turn to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. If you're using one of the Bibles there from the pew rack, you want to turn to page 977. And we'll read verses 1 through 16, which will go over into uh, page 978 there. Our exposition this morning uh, will be focused on verses 1 through 6. Today marks the end of our faith focus as a congregation. We began the year thinking about biblical identity. That has been our faith focus to start this year. And here on the first Sunday of February, we close the morning sermons on biblical identity, and this evening I would invite you to return to join us for a prayer meeting um, along with the theme of our faith focus. Um, That will be at 6 o'clock tonight. We have looked at biblical identity in these ways so far. We've looked at our created identity, what God says in His Word He created man and woman to be. We've looked at our redeemed identity, that after the fall, Once we were saved, what does that mean for us? Those created in the image of God and being renewed in the image of the Son, what does it mean that we're united to Christ? And then we thought about our sanctified identity. Sanctified means to be set apart, and we mean it in the terms of growing more like Jesus, growing in holiness. That was last week. We thought about our identity in terms of our relationship to sin. This morning, we're thinking about our corporate identity, our identity together as the people of God, or you could say a congregational identity. And we can cut to the chase and identify what uh, would be primary about that identity. The Bible gives several different metaphors for what the church is, a bride, a body, a building, or predominate many of the images that were given in Scripture, but all of those point to a oneness. It's one bride. It's one building. It's one body. So our identity together as Christians is that we're one in Christ. If you and I have been united to Christ, that means that we're united to one another. We are united in Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 26, the first paragraph on the communion of saints identifies both of these things. Our union with Christ and our union with one another. Listen carefully. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, suffering, death, resurrection, and glory. That's our union with Christ. And then, speaking of the church, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce their mutual good, both the inward and for the outward man. It is our union with one another in Christ that is identified as part of the communion of the saints. Our passage this morning is going to drive the point home to us in very clear, explicit ways. Before we read it, Let us pray and ask God for his help. Would you join me in prayer again?
our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is one thing that we have asked of you and that we will seek, that we will dwell in your house all the days of our lives, and that we would gaze upon your beauty, the beauty of your holiness, the beauty of what you have made your people to be as your sons and daughters. So we ask that this morning you would teach us your way and that you would lead us on a level path that we might grow in the knowledge of Christ and glorify Him as we grow in grace. We ask this all in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Hear the Word of God from Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 through verse 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working, properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. That ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May He write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. We just read the beginning of the second half of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And commenting on where we are in the book of Ephesians, Martin Lloyd-Jones explains something that he believes the Apostle Paul is teaching the Ephesians and all Christians to do here. And I quote, we are to give equal weight in our lives to doctrine and practice. The Ephesians must not put all the weight on doctrine and none on practice, nor all the weight on practice and just a little, if any at all, on doctrine. To do so produces imbalance, lopsidedness. The Ephesians must take great pains to see that the scales are perfectly balanced, end quote. Up until this point, we've had 56 verses in the book of Ephesians. 
And of those 56 verses, there's one command. It's in two, repeated in two verses in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, where the Ephesians are told to remember. The first three chapters have been about the plan of salvation, how Christ has accomplished salvation, how God has created a new people to be the new temple that God would dwell in. From the first half of Ephesians, we learn about our new identity in Christ. And here, in chapter 4, there is a shift in the letter. The last three chapters have one exhortation after another, one command after another, one imperative after another. It is filled with, don't live like this, but live like this instead. Here in the book of Ephesians, we see almost split right down the middle of the letter, doctrine and practice. James Montgomery Boyce points out that some Christians are primarily intellectual by nature. They love to study. And then other Christians are oriented more towards experience. So whether it's in worship or in serving, they are looking for action. Scripture teaches us to pursue doctrine and practice. Truth and experience. Boyce goes on to warn, and I quote, Doctrine without practice leads to bitter orthodoxy. It gives correctness of thought without the practice of vitality of the life of Christ. Practice without doctrine leads to aberrations. It gives intensity of feeling, but is our feelings that are apt to go off in any and often a wrong direction. Maybe you are inclined to doctrine over practice or practice over doctrine. For some of you, the first three chapters of Ephesians, were, you would acknowledge them to be very important, but they're so heady. You prefer the last three chapters. Tell me about where the rubber meets the road stuff. Tell us how to live. Others of you, you like the depths of the mysteries of God revealed in the first half of Ephesians, and you could spend every waking moment pondering election, predestination, union with Christ, God's sovereign grace. And you do so without giving not too much thought to what difference it makes on Monday morning. Now, of course, those are caricatures. Sometimes we swing from one emphasis to another in our Christian life. And I would suspect that many of us really haven't had the opportunity to evaluate our spiritual life recently. I would guess that probably more than half of us here in worship are just doing our best to make it to church relatively on time. And it's a good week if we pray and read the Bible every day. And then on top of that, if we have family worship time. And then on top of that, if we were able to participate in one of the growth groups, that's a pretty good week. But let's all take a moment and regroup and think. Let it sink in that the living of the Christian life is learning what God has revealed in His Word, doctrine, and then applying it to your life, practice. It is increasing in the knowledge of God so that your lifestyle will glorify your Father in heaven. It is the renewing of your mind so that you might, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. It's your reasonable worship. It's learning who you are in Christ, identity, and living according to that identity every day, your lifestyle. So with that premise, 
What doctrine does the Apostle Paul want to call to our attention first here? In the next three chapters, there isn't an area of life that isn't touched almost. There's one exhortation after another that deal with most of life. Where would you begin? Would you begin with what our identity means for our work? Would you begin with what our identity means for our sexuality, for our witness? Where does the Apostle Paul begin? In this transition in the letter, um, as he does so often in his letters, he begins with doctrine and moves to practice. But in Paul's writing, he also kind of bookends or separates a section. When he comes to the close of one section, he comes to doxology. He comes to praise. And he's done so in this letter to the Ephesians. He's closed the first three chapters with doxology. And it points us to where he's headed in his exhortations. So with your Bibles hopefully still open, look back at the end of chapter 3 of Ephesians. There he closes the section on doctrine with a prayer and the prayer with a doxology. Verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is a good segue. His doxology is declaring the praise of God and the glory of his church. This is what is on his mind. He is not just addressed individual salvation. He is addressed what does it mean that sinners are then brought into the church. So let's look back then to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, and see what he has said about our identity in the church and as the church here in this letter. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 21. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into the dwelling place for God by the same Spirit. If God's glory is to be shown in the church, it is because the church 
has been redeemed. And in their redeemed community, they have been made, as it says there, one. One new man, one body, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built together into the dwelling place for God. The first thing the Apostle Paul wants to address is that because we are in Christ, we are united to fellow Christians. He wants to embrace that we belong to one body and to promote the unity of the body of Christ. When applying the doctrine of the gospel to our lives together, Paul starts with the congregational exhortation. He addresses Christians corporately as the body. And he says, live in a manner that reflects your identity, your new identity as the people of God. So I want us to see three things from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. In verses 1 and 3, I want us to learn this morning that because we are one in Christ, we should work to maintain the unity of the church. Then in verse 2, the social virtues of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance and love are the way by which we maintain the unity of the church. And then in verses 4 through 6, the foundation of our unity is the unity of our triune God. Verses 1 and 3. Because we are one in Christ, we should work to maintain the unity of the church. Verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is the second time that Paul has referenced himself as a prisoner. And he was actually a prisoner in Rome under house arrest. And this would mean something to the Ephesians. He pastored and helped gather and build the congregation there for three years, roughly, most likely between AD 52 to 55. And in the end of Acts chapter 19, we see that there is a riot in Ephesus that leads Paul to depart for a time from Ephesus, but he never would return. He leaves for the safety of the congregation there. And so he goes on visiting other churches in Macedonia. And he's, as he's doing so, he's collecting an offering for the impoverished Christians in Judea. And in the spring of AD 57, on his way to Jerusalem to bring the offering, he doesn't get to see the entire church, but he calls for the elders of the Ephesian church. And they meet one last time in the coastal city of Miletus. This is two years after he first left Ephesus. And there... Paul meets with them, encourages the elders, and heads to Jerusalem where he knows that trouble awaits him. And it's not long before he is arrested and the Jews want him killed. And in order to save his life, he makes an appeal based on his citizenship as, as a Roman that then eventually gets him to Rome. And it's most likely during that imprisonment that he has written this letter. Remember, the book of Acts ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome. But he says something very interesting about it. This is important because of his personal connection to his audience, his love for them. As he's going to exhort them, he reminds them of who he is and the service that the Lord has called them to. And he says that he is imprisoned for the Lord. 
The preposition there in the Greek could also be translated in the Lord, which makes for an awkward English translation, so it's translated in prison for the Lord. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that I'm going to charge you, I'm going to appeal you, but the appeal comes from someone you know. The appeal comes to someone who might be in Roman chains, but I consider myself a man in the custody of Jesus. And so his appeal comes not as a command, but it comes as one who is intensely devoted to his Lord and to the believers. And the appeal begins with to walk. As we looked at last week, walk is a Hebrew figure of speech for one's conduct and attitude. It's your lifestyle. Your lifestyle that's informed by your worldview. He says, walk in a way worthy of your calling. When he says worthy, he's not saying walk in such a way that you might earn the grace of God. But it is the grace of God that causes us to embrace a new lifestyle. Worth here in verse 1 is saying it's a fitting and appropriate way to live your life. Live in a manner that reflects your new identity. And that identity is tied to you being called to the Savior. Calling here is when your election and predestination became effective and you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying a changed life will come, but first comes God's effectual calling. God's effectual calling will produce good behavior and it precedes good works. And this is his appeal. Adopt certain behaviors consistent with that calling. Our calling as Christians to God comes with blessings and responsibilities. And we should not separate blessings from responsibilities and responsibilities from blessings. Because the chief blessing of our calling is to the family of God. It is our sonship. In Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. As children of God, we are to walk worthy of our new identity. We are to believe what our Heavenly Father has said. Trust in His promises and obey His revealed will. Do you see the, the exhortation that the Apostle is writing to them? The appeal. And he says they are to, he urges them to do so. This is a verbal expression that basically governs the rest of the letter. You could almost say, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. And then he addresses different parts of life. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling in this area of your life, in this area of your life. But here first, he has his eye on the unity of the church. Here first, he has the eye on their identity as being united together in Christ. And so in verse 2, he instructs them to walk in social virtues that will produce harmony in relationships in the church. And then in verses 4 through 6, he gives a sevenfold repetition of the word one. He gives seven reasons why Christians are united. But both of those, both in verse 2 and then in verses 4 through 6, are serving what he's getting at in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
What is said in verse 3 is the goal that verse 2 serves. What is enumerated in verses 4 through 6 reinforce what is said in verse 3. And there's connections between and similarities between verse 1 and verse 3. In verse 1, look back there. Paul urges the Christians to walk worthy in verse 1. And in verse 3, he says, we are to be eager. We are to have a sense of urgency in what? Maintaining the unity of the church. In verse 1, look back there. Paul appeals as a prisoner, one who is bound to Christ. In verse 3, he speaks of another bond. He says that we are to maintain the unity because we have the bond of peace. We are bound together by the Spirit in peace. His point is that we do not create unity in the church. We maintain unity in the church. The Spirit of God has united us. We have received the same Spirit of adoption, each believer. It is the same Spirit that brings each of us into the family of God, and it is the same Spirit that dwells in each believer. And that unity is to be maintained in the bond of peace. Peace is one of the central achievements of the cross of Christ. Our peace with God is a result of being reconciled to Him by the cross of His Son, Jesus dying in our place for our sins, paying the penalty in order that we might be pardoned and at peace with our Maker and to know Him as Father. But because of this vertical reconciliation, we are brought into a horizontal relationship. It's a horizontal relationship with all those who trust in Christ. And that horizontal relationship, too, is built on reconciliation and peace. There in chapter 2, it was reconciliation between those who were part of God's covenant people and those who were outside of God's covenant people. And it remains today that all who come to Christ now have a horizontal relationship with the people of God. Our unity is made possible by the cross and it is made effective by the working of the Spirit. We did not and do not create unity in a congregation, but we have the responsibility to keep it, to protect it, and to promote it. And how do we go about doing that? The how. Well, that's in verse 2. The social virtues of humility Gentleness, patience, and forbearance and love are the way by which we maintain the unity of the church. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance and love. God has not called us to a private relationship with Him. We have a relationship with Him and His people. And these qualities are to be displayed in our relationships with one another for the sake of our life together. Humility is the first that is identified. It was a distasteful idea in the pagan world of Paul's day to be humble. For many, it would have never been considered a virtue. For the Christian, it is one of the highest virtues because it was Christ who demonstrated humility and dying in the place of His people. Humility means low-mindedness or thinking of others above yourself, as we are instructed in Philippians chapter 2. And if we take a moment, and if we think about 
the great honor to be adopted into the family of God, it produces humility because we recognize that it is an undeserved honor that we did not earn or merit or deserve. See, our practice of humility with our posture towards ourselves, our own personal identity, demonstrates that we've been touched and transformed by grace and that we understand grace and we're not in danger of forgetting grace anytime soon. Humility does not mean that you have a low self-image. It's the recognition that all you have is from God. As one person has put it, humility is the first, second, and third essential of the Christian life. And humility is so important because it is pride and arrogance that will quickly harm and destroy the communal life of God's people together. And Proverbs 11.2 says, But when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. We are to embrace humility, but also gentleness. Now gentleness does not equal weakness. Gentleness is rather strength under control. It is a fruit of the Spirit and it's most helpful to understand gentleness in terms of when there is faults that are evident in the body of Christ. Galatians 6.1, there Paul instructs us, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Gentleness does not mean that we ignore sin when it is evident in the body of Christ. But we exercise the authority and strength with gentleness, seeking to restore those who are wandering. And there, did you notice, Paul points to humility again in Galatians 6.1. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Then there's patience. Patience means to be long-souled or long-suffering. It's slowness and retaliation. Patience, too, is a fruit of the Spirit of God working in us. And in our lives together as God's people, quite often patience is the best antidote for anger. You might be righteously angry about something in the church or someone in the church. But be careful how you express and exercise that righteous anger. And be careful to do so with patience. Why? Because then it says, bearing with one another. As one New Testament scholar translated bearing with one another, they put it in a way I think it's very helpful and it doesn't need much comment. He said it also could be translated putting up with one another. We are to exercise forbearance with one another. In so with an attitude of love. You could say that humility and gentleness, patience and bearing with one another really all point us to love. And if our love isn't marked by humility, gentleness, patience and bearing with one another, then we may not be practicing biblical love. 
what this comes down to is that how are we to live out our identity of being one in Christ? How are we to maintain the unity? We're to love one another in the way that God has loved us. He has shown us in His Son humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. Christ's invitation to you and I says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus, the one who could rightfully and only say, you are condemned for your sins because he was the perfect man who never sins. When he calls sinners to himself, he says, I am gentle. I'm lowly in heart. There in the midst of Israel's great sins, as they are beginning their wilderness wanderings, how did God reveal himself to Moses when Moses asked God to show himself to him? In Exodus 34, God announced to Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this description of God is repeated at least seven other times in the Old Testament. We are to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ the way that we have been treated by our great God and Savior. Do you find yourself struggling with pride or particularly arrogance towards other in the, in the church? Practice humility because God in Christ humbled himself to take on flesh and die for sinners like you. Do you find yourself with a tendency to be rough with others in the church knowing that you're right and they're wrong? Practice gentleness because God has been gentle with you when you didn't deserve it and you were wrong? Are you quick to get angry at others in the church? Practice patience because God is a God who is slow to anger. How do we maintain the unity of the church? It's through humility and gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. And to quote the Mandalorian, this is the way. This is the way we are to maintain the unity of the church in our relationships. But the apostle also gives us the why in verses 4 through 6. The why is the foundation of our unity is a theological foundation. It is the unity of our triune God that the apostle Paul points us to. He says that there is one spirit, one Lord, one Father, the letter to the Ephesians began with the, the work of the triune God in the plan of salvation. And now, the second half of the letter begins with the Trinity being the foundation of the church's identity. There are seven decorations of oneness, and they all revolve around the Trinity. The God who is one God in three persons. And the doctrine of the Trinity is a mind-boggling concept. But the fact that Paul grounds our unity in the Trinity instructs us that unity is never to be pursued at the expense of truth. 
at the expense of doctrine. We are not to settle for shallow doctrine for the sake of unity. Unity is maintained on a foundation of shared common convictions. Paul gives a sevenfold confession as the theological grounds of our unity. All pointing us to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we could say from the outset here that biblical unity is not the tolerance of wrong doctrine. It's not just a call to get along with each other at all costs. Because it is a situation that is quite sad if there's no truth that unity is only the appearance of unity, but no true unity. And so we look at verse 4. It says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Here we see the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. It is the Spirit who placed us in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now the body is a very helpful image for us. Speaking of being one in Christ, because it speaks that there are different parts, but all the parts are designed to work together. And in the next section, the Apostle Paul goes on to, to teach us that, to show us that. That in our unity there is diversity because that's how God intended the body to function, to grow up into the head. There in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we're brought into one body that has a diversity of gifts. We all have a part and a role to play. And this is part of the intent and the design of being part of a small group. And you see, we, we call it our growth groups. We recognize that we are a, a body, a, a larger body here, if you would, as a congregation. But we need to make sure that we're healthy at the level of the cell, at the smallest group level. And it's in there that we get to practice showing each other gentleness and patience and forbearance as we grow in humility, demonstrating love for one another and using our gifts to bless one another. If you're not involved with one of the growth groups, I would commend that to you. That is a work of the Spirit that we are placed in the one body. But that Spirit also is the one who gives us the same hope. It is the Spirit Himself that is the deposit of our eternal hope. Ephesians 1, 13-14 says, We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. It is the Holy Spirit that comes and confirms to each of us that our home is in heaven and that we are citizens of God's kingdom, that we are His children. And that this life isn't all that there is. That there's an inheritance to come. A resurrection to be received. An everlasting life for those who trust in Christ. The Spirit is the one who gives us the deposit of our hope. Here, commenting on this section, Charles Hodge very poignantly says, Sins 
against unity are sins against the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 5, we see the work of the Son, the person of the Son. There in a, a, a section, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The Spirit is spoken of in verse 4, and then the, the Father is identified in verse 6. So we could be clear that the one Lord spoken of here is the Son. Now for the diaspora Jews, when they have heard this declaration of one Lord, it reminded them of the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here it's saying that Jesus, the one who walked on this earth, who died on a cross and rose again, he was God in the flesh. See, in the church we serve one another, but no Christian is another Christian's master. We serve one another because Christ is our Lord. He is our master. It is the God-man who is our owner and sovereign. Romans 14.9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. We share a common Lord who is Lord of our life. And this may work out differently in each of our circumstances, but we have the same Lord. It will certainly mean for all of us that we reorganize our priorities. It means that we will need to clarify our allegiances. A good example of this is that it means that we should be careful and use great caution when, as believers, we associate with a particular political party in this world. In the ancient Roman world, declaring that Jesus is Lord was politically provocative. And many Christians would lose their life for that. Because it was saying that Caesar is not Lord. And to be clear, there's no political party on the face of this planet that is consistently faithful to our Lord Jesus. In our country, particularly, as political parties, neither Republicans or Democrats consistently and faithfully serve the one true Lord. Now thank God there are those who are Christians who work in government, who work alongside and with and in those parties who will only bow the name to King Jesus. We should give thanks to God for them and we should pray for them. We desperately need Christians who are doing such service whenever possible in the governments of this world. We need Christians who are first and foremost committed to the lordship of Jesus serving in our government. But to be clear, the parties do not serve King Jesus. They serve their own goals and ends. And so I pray for us as a people that over the course of the next year, we would remain clear on who our ultimate allegiance rightfully belongs to. That we would see our identity in Christ and our corporate congregational identity as being united one to another as more important than any affiliations with any political party. Well, it goes from one Lord to one faith. Here the Apostle Paul says, we share the same Lord and we share the same belief, the same creed, if you would. Here, it's speaking of an objective faith, the content of our faith, not the experience, subjective believing of that content. Now, the faith that is identified here is to be embraced by each of us, but it is a shared 
objective faith that Paul is appointing to. He references it in many places in his letters, saying that there is a faith, the faith. Ephesians 4.13, Galatians 1.23, Romans 1.5, Colossians 1.23, 1 Timothy 3.9, 1 Timothy 4.1, 1 Timothy 4.6. All these identify that there was a shared creed, if you would, among the churches. There were not multiple churches or multiple Christianities in the first century. Some modern scholars would do that. They would dissect and tear apart your Bible and say, look, here's this, here's this group of Christians, here's this Christianity, here's this version of Christianity. No, that wasn't the case. The Apostle Paul says that we have one faith. And in the early church, the work of the councils and the creeds was not making up a faith. No, it was articulating that one faith that was handed down from the apostles and deposited in the scriptures. And as issues and controversies arose, the church then took time to defend and argue and clarify the one faith. And it's tremendously difficult to, to identify with, with supreme confidence what the one faith is. But I think we're, we have good grounds to understand that the one faith he's, he's talking about is it's, a, it's Apostle Creed faith. It's Nicene faith. It's Chalcedon faith. It is what was affirmed in the early creeds, especially there the Apostles' Creed, but it's also the one faith. It's what was recovered in the Reformation. The, formers, the Reformers not seeking to initially leave and start their own church, but seeking to recover what the church believe the one faith handed down from the apostles. So the one faith consists of the, the solas of the Reformation. That salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. And that scripture is the authority in the church. This is, I believe, the one faith that we share with the Christians in this room and also brothers and sisters outside of this room. And from this one faith, Throughout the history of the church, we've seen different traditions come out. And these traditions are good. It's good that there are different streams coming from this one faith. What it acknowledges is that right now we see in part, we know in part, but we don't have perfect knowledge yet. It's not that Scripture is not sufficient. It's that we are growing in our understanding. And so it is better that there would be separate denominations because we disagree over an interpretation of Scripture than for there to be just one big mushy denomination that says it doesn't matter what the Bible says. But then it says from one faith to one baptism. Now I think the first hearers of one baptism would not have been struck with what maybe you were struck with when you heard there's one baptism. I think that it would have clearly been a call to unity. But in our day, it is often an obstacle to unity. Now to be clear, it's the practice of baptism and not a reference to a particular mode of baptism that is identified here. I want to remind you that among Protestant traditions, we share more in common about what we believe the Bible teaches about baptism 
than is often acknowledged. We believe that the baptized are those who are set apart from the world and set apart for Christ. It is a sign and seal of belonging to Christ and a sign and seal of the benefits promised to those who trust in Him. You are see, we find ourselves in a Reformed tradition in which we understand that there is an interpretation of Scripture concerning baptism. And we're not ashamed of that. We will teach and preach and defend the practice of covenant baptism. But by God's grace, we'll do it with humility, gentleness, and patience. And for our brothers and sisters who would have different views, may our conversations be marked by humility, gentleness, and patience. Because in baptism, we believe that we've been set apart from the world and set apart for Christ. Sins against unity are sins against our one Lord. And then we come to the Father in verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We come to God our Father last in Paul's list here. This is the reverse of the normal order in creeds and in confessions concerning the triune God. But it would seem that the Apostle Paul has gone from the effect to the cause. It is the Spirit who has brought us into God's family. It was the Father's design. And this is where we land with a reminder that Brothers and sisters, we are genuinely, really brothers and sisters in God's family. And that our Father, He is over all. He is transcendent. He is through all. He is sovereign. There's nothing that is outside of His will. He is in all. He is omnipresent. Our great God, the one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our Heavenly Father, He's transcendent, sovereign, and omnipresent for the sake of His family. And He is near to us and come near to us. And we know Him as Father because of the sending of His Son. And this was a great burden for the Son that we would know the unity of the Trinity and that then we would experience that unity in our lives together. In Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John 17, he references the oneness of his people four times and points it to the greater reality of the oneness between Father and Son. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. What a tremendous insight we are given into the heart of God in Jesus' prayer and His heart for His people 
His love for his father, his father's love for him. And that's the love that he prays for us. But did you notice there that in that oneness, in that unity, there's a testimony to a broken and fractured world, to a sinful, hate-filled world, when they see that we are in Christ and one in Christ, it testifies to our Heavenly Father. Jesus prayed that this would be so, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then he prays, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Our commitment to the one body, the one spirit, the one hope, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, one God and Father of all is part of being a city set on a hill and our witness to the reality of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We should be warned that sins against unity are sins against our Heavenly Father. The Apostle Paul has made it clear we do not create or maintain this unity. What's implied is that it can be harmed and severed. There could be times when it needs repair. And the encouragement is that we have what is necessary for that repair. That when relationships are harmed and there is hurt and bitterness and sins committed one against the other, we have what it takes for peace, reconciliation. We have been given in the gospel what is necessary for repair. It is the precious blood of Jesus. Christ's death on the cross paid for the sins you committed and it also paid for the sins committed against you by brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we believe in the power of the blood of Jesus so we dare not demean its value and not offer forgiveness and seek reconciliation. Is there someone in the body you need to reconcile with? You can do so because the blood of Jesus can repair that relationship. Ephesians chapter 4 ends this way. There, the Apostle Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Let's ask for God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Lord, you are our light and our salvation. We thank you that you are at work among us. And we should not fear attacks from outside the church. And we should not fear harm coming from within. Because you are our stronghold. And the gospel that saves us is the gospel that keeps us 
And the gospel that made us one people is the gospel that will maintain and promote our unity. Lord, we wait for you. We do not want to become hasty in the way that we treat others. May you give us strength and courage to be clear in our convictions and to be bold in our love for one another. We ask for your Spirit's help that Christ will be glorified through URC. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.